Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm Andy Larson, farm finance consultant for the Food Finance Institute and Wisconsin Small Business Development Centers. I am really excited to be here with Will Glazik. He's a fantastic young organic grain farmer from East Central Illinois, who is also a distilled spirits entrepreneur. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast, Will. Thank you, Andy. Happy to be here. Let's get started with the sort of Reader's Digest version of your family farming origin story, for lack of a better word. Uh, where and what do you grow? When and how did you start? And where are you at in your sort of farm business trajectory today? Sure. Um, our family has been farming in this area for five generations since they immigrated from Ireland. They haven't gotten very far. Uh, I'm four miles away from they originally settled. So my brother and I are currently doing the grain operation while dad's running the livestock side. Okay. We run, well, it's been, been kind of a journey. So mom and dad started farming conventionally. My, my grandfather was born before chemicals were around. Okay. Started using them after the world war. And then but he was never a really big user of chemical. He'd use some fertilizer, but always elevated, used very little herbicide. And then when mom and dad got a chance to start farming, they transitioned to organic pretty quickly in 2002. Okay. So I really grew up on an organic farm where you always have a, a longer rotation. We do corn, soybeans, wheat, or oats with about three years of hay or pasture in there before it rotated back into row crop. So we always use cover crops after our corn, before our soybeans, like rye or, or oat. And then I went off to college, got a degree at the University of Illinois in agronomy. And then I went into the ag retail world. So I was selling fertilizer, chemicals, feed, the whole work. And I got a chance to start farming on my own uh, with a woman named Jackie Davis. She wanted her ground to transition to organic and I was interested in farming. I mean, I'd always been helping dad for sure, but I wanted to set out on my own venture. Mm -hmm. And through it, her really got me started doing some different things, really intensifying our cover crop program. And we've done like no-till organic programs every now and then. And we started raising some specialty grains like bloody butcher corn and spelt and buckwheat. And we really kind of went hog wild there for a while. Uh, I got married, had have two, two young children. My wife's a veterinarian. Um, so we're busy. And now we're going from a 14 crop rotation, mostly specialty crop and trying to narrow that down into something that's much more manageable for us to work with our busy schedule. Awesome. Okay, so I'm going to tease apart bits and pieces of that because you gave <laughs> the bullet on pretty much the entire 
uh, layout of what this podcast is going to include, I expect, Will. So that's awesome. Um, so let's let's go back in time just a little bit. You were schooled in agronomy at the University of Illinois. You spent several years as an agronomist. If I remember correctly, you got a bit of a reputation for being an open-minded and creative agronomy consultant to the to the area farmers, especially in the area of soil health. Um, what did that experience teach you, and how did it affect the way that you're farming now? Yeah, I used to so fed up with ag retailers <laughs> and then the the reps for the ag retailers because they'd be like, all right, you got this weed and you just got to go out there and drop an atomic bomb on it. You can't have any <laughs> of these diseases blowing in on your corn. And they're like, and it's going to cost you another $25 an acre. <laughs> Growing up on an organic farm, we never used any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we never saw much of those problem and i'm like so i'd sit in you know i'd get my free lunch and my free baseball tickets and free beer and i'd listen to their spiel and then i'd go out to the go out to the farmers and i mean and everyone i worked with i didn't work with any of the really large farmers everyone was pretty mid-sized between 750 and 3,000 acres okay and they're, you know, they're doing what they can to get by. No one's really making it big and no one's going broke, but they really hated the idea of spending another $25 an acre every time they turn around. Sure. So started working with them to integrate some cover crops, started working with them to add wheat or oats to the rotation, mm-hmm. trying uh, to reduce some of their tillage and reduce some of their herbicide passes. And to do get to do some integrated pest management Woo! and scouting <laughs> on their own to see if they actually have a problem before they pull the trigger on something, and then ultimately a number of those people started to transition into organic after they they kind of dipped their toe in the water. They were able to move into organic, and now we've got a nice little growing organic community of grain farmers here in Ford County. We're up to 10. That's awesome. That's a wonderful critical mass. Uh, So for you listeners who are not familiar with East Central Illinois and the flatback soils of the Corn Belt, it is the rotation is colloquially we referred to as corn, soybeans in Florida. (laughs) It's um, limited diversity um, and large scale and expensive ground. And so, Will, what you're talking about is substantially contributing to the the crop rotation, making it much more diverse, much longer term. And you've even got some acres under your belt. People went all the way to transitioning to organic under your tutelage. Right. Yep. Tried to help them out. Wonderful. I still, um, I don't do near as much of that, but I, yeah, I used to do some consulting and put together transition plans and help do markets and stuff like that. In addition to soil health, another one of the big conversations, especially amongst young farmers, is around land access and land tenure. Land's expensive. East Central Illinois, what's a what's a conventional acre of ground going for right now, Will? Eight to fourteen thousand. Depending on the ground. Okay, so land's expensive both to own depending on the ground. And yeah. and to rent. It's a rent is is well and, and to rent, I wanna say Ford County's average is probably two 
40, but there's some bad parts of Ford County and there's some good parts of Ford County. So, you know, your range is going to be anywhere between 150 and 350, kind of depending on the ground and, and the size of the farmer and the size of the track, really. So it, it's expensive to, to get in, and I don't own any ground. My parents own ground, and then we have uh, one piece for the farm manager. We have 160 I talked about where I started with Jackie. Mm-hmm. And then my, my brother has 160 with another lady. And, and all that's on 50-50 share crop to where we split all of the bills that come in. Mm-hmm. And then we split all of the checks that come in. Everything for equipment and labor falls on myself and my brother. Mm-hmm. And then any land infrastructure improvements and taxes that all falls onto the landowner. So that might be tile or a grain bin, tool shed maintenance, that kind of stuff. Well, okay. And so it's a it's a unique arrangement because, well, what's very common in places like Illinois right now is just straight cash rent, you know, where you you pay whatever it is, two hundred and fifty or three hundred dollars an acre for the use of that ground for the year. But you're doing something that is that is more of a crop share, as you described. How did you and Jackie come together, and how did you hit it off? We met up just on chance at a, a cover crop expo. I was trying to find some organic cover crop seeds for my dad. So I was working with him to step up his cover crop program, and it was hard to find certified seeds back then. And Jackie just was walking by in a... And she's pretty outgoing. Like she is a landlord that cares about her ground and was going to these cover crop expos to learn more. She was cash renting out to another tenant, and she worked with him trying to integrate cover crops for a couple of years. And when she wanted to go organic, she didn't know who to turn to. Mm-hmm. And she was literally walking by as I asked this vendor about organic cover crop seed. And after I get done with my conversation with the, the vendor. She pulls me aside and says, hey, I heard you say organic. Are you a farmer? Are you around here? And then uh, <laughs> after that, we, we really hit it off and been pretty good ever since. Cool. She's not the shy type. That's great. She, so she remembers her. What's She's that? not the shy type, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, no. No, she's not shy. Um. It's been cool. She's really become a, a part of the family. Uh, she comes over for birthday parties and Sunday dinners and things like that. Uh, oh, but we ended up landing on a share crop agreement because that's what her dad had done and what she believed would be the most equal and most fair. And it's worked out really, really well for us as we transition to organic. Those are some tough years as I, and, and this sounds so stupid to, to say it out loud, but like, as I, like I grew up farming, like I really came in thinking I knew all of it and I didn't want to listen to anybody else. And I had my own ideas and I really wanted to put them put them to practice and you know that that mindset has really shifted over time and I know way less now than when I started <laughs> um, 
And I, all I got now is questions. I don't have any answers. <laughs> uh, so just as we, as we try new things, as we transition to organic, as we, I mean, we've had total crop failures. Like I really thought I had no till corn figured out. So I put half of our corn crop into just straight white Dutch clover. And I thought it would grow really well. And I put, you know, my highest margin corn crop, the bloody butcher corn for whiskey, put that out there. And I yielded 10 bushel an acre on that. Ouch. So had I've had some major losses trying some of these experiments. And it's been extremely humbling. Um, I normally learn learn by doing, which isn't always the fastest way. <laughs> but you don't ever forget. But you're but Jackie, the landlord, was able to kind of stand with you through that during this time. Right. Jackie stood with me. She was always encouraging me, even as things were, you know, not pretty. And and over time I've been able to work the kinks out and and not stand so fast on some of my dogma and be willing to, to flex and to pivot and change and that's really helped out and, and now so we got up to like a 14 crop rotation raising all kinds of different specialty stuff getting planted all the time getting harvested all the mm-hmm. time uh and that that got pretty out of control it got pretty wild and we had hogs and that got cattle and they were starting the distillery and you know we burn out uh it was tough it was it was tough working long hours it was tough at home uh, my wife was in veterinary school at the time we had our first child it was really really tough and since then we've really trimmed it down we streamlined processes to make sure and we and i bought some some different tools. I, I, that one year, 2019, when we went from 240 acres to 1,000 acres, and it was one of the wettest years ever, mm-hmm. was when we took on all that transitional ground. And I had a 10-foot rototiller covering three acres an hour <laughs> trying to get across 1,000 acres a year. Yeah. Sometimes it requires the right tools, doesn't it? (laughs) Right. We spent the money, tooled up. Things are a lot better now. I've got a speed disc and I can cover 30 acres an hour. And that makes, you know, speed preparation plants go so much further. Well, and just to put a... But then we've also streamlined it. Yes. Well, okay. So to put a finer point on this, like 14 crops not only requires all of the complexity in the production system, but with the type of specialty items that you're growing, doesn't that also lead into an immense complexity and diversity for marketing? I mean, I'm assuming you're not taking very much to your local grain elevator. How do you, how do you turn all those crops to money? Put them in 50-pound bags, and you deliver them in the back of your pickup truck. <laughs> to whom? Yeah, a lot of it went to, a lot of it went for whiskey. 
um, in, in beer. And a lot of it got sold as cover crop seed. Some of it got sold to different flour mills. A lot of it got fed to pigs. Okay. Um, you know, the corn and the beans we could haul out in the wheat. Everything else went out direct market. To end consumers, to ingredients or companies? Or ourselves. Okay. Like- yeah, all that. So farmers for cover crops. Um, it, it was end users mainly. No one bought it to mill their own. It would go to a flour mill. It would go to our own distillery. Okay. So basically, if I named a market, you, you've, you've sold to it before. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I sell foxtail seed to herbicide researchers. Foxtail seed, just to, <laughs> to be clear to the listeners, that's a weed, an agronomic weed, and uh, is not, uh, there's not a lot of markets for foxtail seed amongst the conventional commodity crowd. How the heck did you land on that? <laughs> I, I, honestly, Andy, I, I don't know how some of this stuff works out. It's it just, it, I, I've been very fortunate. I've been extremely blessed. And there's been a lot of situations that just fell in my lap and I was able to to grab them when they're sitting right there. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. I've been very blessed. Maybe that reputation that preceded you for a while there is uh proved useful and people at least know in your name and say, he might try this. <laughs> so in, it, you also mentioned tooling up, right? Having the right tools for the trade in order to be able to do this kind of farming. So uh, I'm curious how you did that. Like, does your farm have a business relationship with a, a financial institution? I've known you for a while. So I know that you and financial institutions like, it depends on the day, right? Like it's not always your favorite thing to talk about, but we we're we're always bringing it back to to finances here on this podcast. So I'm I'm kind of wondering what role the 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 bank, the quote unquote bank, plays in financing and growing your operation. I started with twenty thousand dollars saved up mm-hmm. and. I borrowed twenty thousand dollars. I started with forty thousand to purchase an entire line of equipment. From That's hard. The primary tillage. <laughs> You're fighting with the junkers. <laughs> um, I've also been fortunate that my my dad's a machinist, and he taught me how to do a lot of mechanic work, and fabrication and welding yeah uh, he, he keeps everything because he can make anything out of nothing and that's just an amazing resource to have here at home sure so yeah i bought a bunch of junk <laughs> and i still buy a bunch of junk <laughs> uh, my first combine didn't go over three mile an hour Got it. My second combine, I drove it home out of Chicago, Henley Park. Um, took me six and a half hours down Route 45. <laughs> Some sightseeing in the combine, yes. <laughs> right, a lot of one-fingered wave. 
no, I mean, we, and we, it hasn't all been junk. And, and, but I grew up with that too. My dad's always had that same kind of mentality. So I knew what to look for. I knew what I could buy cheap at an auction that I could just change some bearings on or put some new sweeps on it. And it might not look pretty, but it would function well. Okay. And that, that's how I got going. And so I, I paid off that first 20000 before I got a, out of transition. Great. And I didn't borrow any money up until two years ago. Okay. I did open up an operating line to, uh, to help with some cash flow. And that was a big deal. That that really took a lot of stress off of things. And I also borrowed some money to buy a four-wheel drive tractor and a high-speed disc. Okay. But I can tell you, so let's see. I I got a, I paid off that first 20. Um, and then I borrowed another 40. And I keep a 40 operating and I've got about a hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty thousand dollar machinery right now. Okay. Which in the whole grand scheme of things isn't even a, a used combine. But uh like I said, I I I buy small good stuff. Excellent. so when you walk into the bank, how do the folks there so when you went to open up these two lines a couple of years ago. How did they react to the type of farming that you do in a landscape that's that's really predominated by, you know, conventional commodity crop production? Did you have to go into educator mode or did your numbers speak for themselves or what did you have to do in order to get the financing you got? I didn't have to do anything that I can remember, Andy. I think I gave him a tax return. But <laughs> I mean, my family has also banked at that bank for five generations. Ah. And it's not we, I mean. Got it. So again, <laughs> the the reputation preceded you. That's excellent. <laughs> um, the reason I ask is sim- uh, yeah, simply because not had any trouble. With yes. That. Because so many people who are trying to do something alternative in an arena where things are very conventional uh, wind up having to do a lot of a lot of splaining. <laughs> so that's really cool that you have a um, a financial partner that kind of gets it and understands what is uh, behind your promises to to pay back loans. Have you ever brought in any sort of unconventional financing? Something like grants or cost shares from the nrcs or other oh yeah we we do quite a few we do quite a few grants okay um yeah i've received a number of grants over the years for what kind of purposes great way to do um different experiments to equipment Um, yeah, got it. Experiments and equipment and equipment for experiments. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes that's the way you have to frame it because it seems like equipment and infrastructure is the finest thing, uh, hardest thing to find 
you know, grant money surrounding. I've never okay. done a USDA loan. Okay, so. Um, but a lot of it's been foundation grants and fair grants. Got it. Like excellent. Uh, the, Sarah is a sustainable agriculture research and right, education. I'm going to throw a big for shout anybody out who is unfamiliar. To, uh, the Frontera Foundation, and if you're a farmer selling yep. into Chicago land, you can apply annually for up to twelve thousand dollars for equipment. And for a person like yourself, that's, you know, eight or nine implements, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have to echo that shout out as well. Um, it's it's something that my farm has done also. That's that's why we have a nice little egg processing shed out behind the house, too. So, yes, um, many, many thanks and kudos to the Frontera Farmer Foundation. Yeah, they, they've been <laughs> On the subject of finance professionals, it wasn't that long ago that you struck up an arrangement with an accountant slash bookkeeper yeah. to help you keep track of your farm finances. Right. What motivated you to start doing that? And how has it changed your like uh, financial management and decision making on the farm? Bookkeeping side of things is something that I I have always struggled with. I don't, I'm not quite sure why. My mom is really good at it, but I just can't get my head around numbers on a spreadsheet and keeping accounts balanced. And I, I never cared about it. I just I had other things that I'd much rather go do. So, and I know a lot of other uh -huh. friends that would rather just be out in the field or going out and making sales calls or working on a piece of equipment and they never get around to balancing the books and, and really knowing what the bottom line is. I just kind of look at the bank account. If I had enough money in there right. to go buy whatever the thing I wanted, then I would. And then all of a sudden, like 17 people would cash their checks and I'd be overdrawn. And um, <laughs> I, I never, <laughs> and I'm exaggerating on some things, but you get the point. Uh, so I, yep, I was really bad at, it. and it was it was just always a fight. And I was interested in getting someone to help with the books and help it help me manage money, and and then to go into and I didn't know how to run QuickBooks. I like I think my last education and bookkeeping stopped in fifth grade when they taught us how to balance a checkbook. And after that, I was more interested in the sciences <laughs> and, and stuff that I thought was more fun. Uh, so when my mom's like, oh, just go get QuickBooks, I'm like, all right, well, this can't be too hard. And there are so many buttons in QuickBooks. And I didn't know what even half the words were. <laughs> So I, I take <laughs> what I was pretty proud of to the tax consultant and they'd look at like, what is this crap? And then they're like, do you know how to run QuickBooks? <laughs> so anyways, that's kind of the short end. I was bad at it, period. And 
Okay. And I didn't want to <laughs> learn either. So that's the motivation. I was bad at it. I didn't <laughs> so that's learn. the motivation. And, and what has it brought on? So now I have a wonderful person who does my books. She is amazing. I can send her as, as I drop off training, I take a picture of it and I put it in a shared folder. She goes and gets it organized by farm and who the splits go out to. And whenever I get a check and I deposit it, she puts it towards whatever it's supposed to be at. She's wonderful. And now I can look back and show that, you know, my profitability, so my operating profitability by field, by crop, by year. And that has been huge to help me focus in on what is going to be profitable, what I need to keep, make mm -hmm. sure that the other stuff is profitable. So like with organic, I can't just raise like corn and soybeans are really profitable. But you can't raise corn unless you have a red clover crop. You can't get a red clover crop established unless you have uh, small grain. So like I have to keep some wheat in the rotation to get the clover to raise the corn, but I might not, well, I'm not going to go chasing all of these different specialty crop options that, that pop up. I'm just going to focus in on what's profitable, what I have, the tools, and the, the capacity to do. And, and since I, and my wife helped me make that decision. And since okay. we came up with that idea, things have gone so much smoother. And, and it, everything just seems to work. I'm not near as stressed as I used to be. I'm not running ragged like I used to be for two years, almost, no, three years. Uh, and, I, and another thing is I was just running out of time. My wife was in veterinary school, and then she was a veterinarian after graduation. Mm -hmm. And so that was down in Champaign. So I was in charge of getting our kids to and from childcare. So I could drop them off at eight and pick them up at four. So I couldn't get started working until about nine. And I had to quit by about three. And I had to get all of my farming operations done within that time during the week. Oh, man. So when you're, when you're put up against the wall, you really figure out how to streamline. And... And Caitlin and <laughs> Caitlin and the, the team of accountants that she works with have been wonderful and helped me figure out what to focus in on and and really how and showed me that I was doing all this specialty stuff that I thought was really profitable because I was selling it for like multiple dollars a pound. But in the end, by the time I put in all yeah. the steps, it wasn't any more profitable than corn or soybeans. So it's like, why would I go through all that extra work when it's really not even more money? Wow. That sounds like a really, really eye-opening reality check for oh, you. kicking the fans, yeah. But it, you got to have the living on there. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I feel like um, farmers are done a little bit of a disservice. Like many of them go into, you know, business formation and business growth and business management without ever getting taught anything beyond, 
you know, revenues minus expenses equals net profit, because that's the way that the the Schedule F is kind of set up. Right. What you're describing, you know, I'd call kind of enterprise level analysis. Yeah. You know, that, crop that, by crop, field exactly by field, what's working yeah. and what's. Yeah. Got it. So important. So important. And something that so many people in agriculture. That part right there that got me thinking that I don't want to get any bigger. All the farmers around me want to grow. They want to grow. They want to grow. And they just get bigger equipment and they get more ground. And, you know, the reason land is so expensive around here is because it's cut. Everyone's trying to get their neighbor's ground. Well, I just want to get profitable and kick my feet up and have a cocktail in the evening. So I want to farm less and make more money doing. So I I set out to hit. Okay. I want to get down to 160 acres and net profit $1,000 an acre. And I'm going to. Did you hear that, folks? I want to get. Down to 160 acres. And then what did you say as far as the, the profitability? I want a net profit $1,000 an acre. And it, it's not, uh, it's a stepping process. So I got to get my main okay. crops up to, you know, operating. So all my, let's just call it like fuel, lime, manure, seed, so all my operating expenses for a year minus or take my revenues minus my operating expenses. I want that number for right now to be a thousand dollars on all 160 acres. And then I want to start the the non-farm accountants would call that gross profitability for the enterprise. Okay. Yes. And then well, then I want to have that thousand dollars an acre profit also include my family living. So if I want to take out a $60,000 family living, I got to work that also instead of that. Um, so we're working on it. And honestly, I think having less ground would help me get to that because it would open up so much more time for me to do a better job on that smaller acre. Interesting. So the the focus winds up being how to coax more profitability out of each acre with the the sort of streamlined rotations and the premium markets that you're developing for yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. So cool and so interesting. There's just there's so few there's so few um, practitioners of row crop agriculture that have a a goal to get down to a certain size and to really focus on the on the profitability of the enterprise. So that's really wonderful to hear. It it you've also it sounds like use this information to uh narrow your operations, right? So you had 14 crops at your high point. What are you at now? Six. Well, six. Let me let me see. So Soybeans are biggest single crop. <laughs> I can hear you counting on your fingers That's at the exactly other end of the phone. <laughs> Soybeans is our biggest single crop. And then we have uh, okay. hybrid yellow corn. 
and we have bloody butcher corn. And some people want to call those two separate crops, but they really got to be treated separately. They're very different plants. And then we have rye, okay. wheat, and oats. So that's, that's our six main crops. And we got a okay. few other things we're playing around with. I've got a field of sunflowers. Uh, in the field of sunflowers, I have some black beans. Uh, in one of the field of corn, I have pumpkins. I've also raised clover seed with my small grains. So six main with... So you're always experimenting. Yeah. yeah. Six main crops with a handful of Got it. things. And if I understand correctly, five out of those six things, those six main things that you just rattled off, you distill them. That's right. Yeah. Into distilled spirits, correct? That's right. How did you get started working with distilleries, first off? And second off, like, does there have to be anything special about grain that is bound for the, the distillery market as opposed to, like, the, the, the food or the feed market? I'll answer that first one. The second one is a little, I mean, not normally there doesn't have to be anything too special. There are some different things that you want to look for. Okay. But it doesn't necessarily have to be special. So my brothers and I, we have brewed beer and we we just kind of love playing around with homebrew. And there for a while, my brother and I were living together. Mm -hmm. and that's just kind of what we did. We hung around and brewed beer and drank beer. And we thought, well, hey, the craft beer industry is growing. Let's open up a brewery. And then there was a mm -hmm. really nice farm brewery that opened up in Champaign. They do an, it's called Rig. They do an awesome job. They have a really good crowd. They have a wonderful story. They make excellent beer. Like he's he's a German master brewer. He studied in Germany. He makes these wonderful German lagers. And we're like, well, shit, we can't compete with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds hard to compete with. <laughs> and then we're like, well, and he's talking about the, the barley. A lot of craft beer is heavy on malted barley. And all the barley we've ever raised around here gets so, well, especially organically, gets so infested with disease, it's not even suitable for human consumption. They don't use a lot of corn. They don't use a lot mm. of rye or some use wheat, but very few oats. The grains that aren't used in beer are the grains that are used in whiskey or American-style whiskeys. So we started selling wheat to Old Bakery Beer Company at our certified organic brewery, started selling wheat to them. And then that was going on for a few years. And then they invited us down for a conference. It was kind of a gathering of farmers, bakers, brewers, and distillers. And I was sitting there, and there was a distiller. With Sounds fun. But that. Sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> I get invited to this conference and I'm sitting there and a distiller is talking about how he's a farmer distiller and he's got this thing going and he's looking for some contract work. And so I pull him aside after the conference and he's a cool guy. Grew up on a family farm. He's eighth generation down in Southern Illinois. His name's Adam Stump uh, from Stumpy Spirits. And so I, I get his number and we keep in touch. And I'm like, 
I asked him one time, I said, hey, how much would it cost like run off a batch of vodka? So I knew vodka didn't have to be aged, and it could use the same wheat that we were cleaning for the brewery. And I, I like wheat vodka. And you know, he, he gave us a number, and I talked to my brothers, and they're like, well, we can swing that. And you know, then it'd be legal, and we can get it out on the market, try to sell it. And if it doesn't sell, it's Unlike beer, it doesn't have a shelf life, and everyone can have vodka for Christmas for the next ten years. And <laughs> and there that's what go. we did. We all pitched in four or five thousand dollars, and thing got this going, and it sold. And it it did well. We we busted our tails going around with the distributor to the different bars, restaurants, grocery stores, liquor stores, trying to get a place. And it's a lot of work to try to do that and to try to do something different and to tell, you know, because we have this five generation story and all the stuff that we're doing on our farm and everything we're excited about and the way we use our cover crops and pillage and, and try to put that all into a, just a little pitch as you're giving someone a drink uh, it's, it's hard, really, really hard. So we're bad at it. And did they um, care? They liked that it was local and they liked the way it tasted. And that was about it. No one okay. really cared much about how we felt we were saving the world through, you know, building soil health. <laughs> Which sucks. Like, <laughs> I guess that forces you to refine your elevator pitch a little bit, well, depending you know, on the you, audience. You adjust, you adjust pretty quickly. Um, we haven't done as much of that, of that direct uh, sales with the distributor since COVID. They shut it down for a while. And things are busy, and we haven't gone out into the market like, like we should be. So that's like actually getting in the truck and going around to liquor stores and bars and yeah. and selling them on yep, your store you and your product. Morning, you get done at eight at night. You have a drink at every stop. <laughs> so it's all about pacing yourself. <laughs> you are wore out by the end. But it, it's good. You get out and you get to huh. meet a lot of people. And and you I, get, it's so much nicer being the owner going out on those sales calls than it is just being a representative of the brand. The, the people are, the buyers are a lot more receptive. And you go out with a distributor and they already know who the decision maker is. So it's not like you're trying to jump through all these different loops. The appointments are already set up. They're already somewhat interested and you just got to kind of go make the final sales pitch. Boy, talk about uh, pounding the pavement and really, you know, kind of ground truthing your idea with the end consumer. That's wonderful. Well, and the the other thing that you that you mentioned is that they really like the product. So that's one of the things that, you know, we try to emphasize with our clients all the time is that you can have all the story in the world, but you still wind up got you, you got to have something that tastes amazing when they put right. it in their face. Yeah. And it, it was really good for us. 
working with an established distillery that already knew what he was doing. And if we were to try to to do this on our own, I mean, I think it would have been crap from the start. I know Adam said his first stuff was crap. <laughs> so I, I don't know why it'd be any different for me. So yeah, we worked with, you know, someone who was already doing it and we'd take them our grain. So that's, that's how we got into it. And then for the first year, we were just doing vodka because we don't have to sit on any inventory. We can turn that pretty quickly. Then sure. we really like whiskey. So we started putting up whiskey. Now that we still haven't sold any whiskey because we, we paid for the grain, paid to have it distilled, paid for a barrel and shoved it in a tin shed for five years. So we've been putting up whiskey for four years and we'll release a four-year-old rye this fall, but then next year we'll have a bourbon. And so just one barrel at a time is the scale that you're operating at right now? No, about 20 to 50 barrels a year, which is is tiny, tiny, tiny. Like we went on a bourbon trail tour to a distillery called Willet because I was, and we went to Maker's Mark. We're like, well, what's a nice little craft distillery we can go to? They said, oh, you can go to Willet. Willet. Is a craft distillery okay. doing 25 barrels a day. <laughs> and that's the rinky dink operation, huh? There's 25 barrels that's the a day. <laughs> so if we're putting up, you know, 30 barrels a year, <laughs> and though you have to sit on that inventory for how many years before it becomes bourbon? I'd have to remember what the, the legal description is. It might only be uh, a year and a day. I can't exactly remember. But just because it's legally bourbon doesn't mean it tastes any good. And okay, there's ways you can get like the, the charcoal flavor into it. There's ways you can kind of speed up aging oh shortcuts and but and i've tried them and there's a lot of you can put them in small barrels you can put like waffle uh grooves on the barrel staves you can uh put them in temperature control rooms because they need the fluctuation temperature and just go hot cold hot cold hot cold hot cold um one one distillery puts them on a, a container ship and ships them across the world so there, there's different ways of doing it and, and this is a personal opinion i don't think anything can be just true age i heard it said once that time respects okay. nothing that isn't made with it so we're just going with the tried oh, and yeah. true method of suck it up and sit on it how do you afford to do that like the it sounds to me like putting up inventory for what i would expect to be somewhere in the neighborhood of what four five six years and not having any sales from that inventory is probably a financial challenge yeah we have a really good bank that are 
very willing to work with us. We all are working outside of the distillery, and mm-hmm. and we still have our vodka. Ah, sure. So the cash flow from the vodka is being sunk back into the the whiskey and bourbon inventory. Then, got it. Okay, interesting. It it reminds me a lot of farmers who start you know perennial crops, tree crops, or you know anything that's going to be you know this this difficult three to seven year waiting period before there's a, a saleable product, and that's that's wonderful that you have a banker that understands that sort of uh, what would you call it that delay and is willing to finance you across and it. our parents co-signed the loan. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, sometimes that's really useful too. Our land-owning parents co-signed the loan. <laughs> that ultimately is what allowed us to do it. So, I mean, we couldn't have done it without that. You know what? That kind of thing gives bankers all sorts of flexibility. Right. (laughs) It's called an abundance of collateral, my friend. (laughs) Okay. All right. Interesting. And And you you also made mention that you are not since. Even though we haven't sold any whiskey yet, we plan to this fall. We were positively collateralized. Excellent. So I think that's the right way to say it. Like, let's just say we borrowed $50,000, okay, to put up one year's worth of whiskey. Well, so we're paying, Mm -hmm. I got started at like 4.5% something to get this going. We're paying that, but every year that that whiskey ages, its wholesale value goes up. 25%. 25%. So, okay. Increasing price of the asset way, is way more than what we're paying. And we, we did show that. Got it. There are not tons of types of collateral that gain in value 25% a year. So that's, that's interesting. You wind up having to be a little bit creative when you're dealing with your financial institution. So you mentioned that since COVID, you really haven't been uh, on the on the truck as often doing that one-on-one salesmanship to the you know the 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 liquor store owners and the bar owners and all that kind of stuff. Has your uh, market for where your distilled products are selling changed since COVID, or do you just feel like you have enough relationships established that you don't have to keep doing that? We have had some really good solid relationships. And those have continued to be strong, and, and we see that. We also haven't done as good as keeping up with all the relationships, and we've also seen some of that slack off too. So we're still moving product, not mm-hmm. near what we had been before, but we are still profitable at doing it. So you can buy us. Uh, here in central Illinois, most places between, uh, I would say, Springfield to the Indiana line and from like Gilman down to Effingham. You know, most liquor stores, most grocery stores, okay. some bars, some restaurants. 
And then we're we're online. So there's a online liquor store called Spirit Hub, based out of Chicago. They ship to okay. 40 states. Okay. And that's been a nice one that we've been able to work with with some, um, you know, online promotions and things. And if we got friends out of state, we can ship to them. Things like that. And you can find us at a, a few places in Chicago. Okay. Covering a pretty big swath of central Illinois, a little bit in Chicago. One thing I'm not super familiar with is sort of what's left for the distiller once you go through what, if I understand correctly, is a relatively complicated set of rules and regulations and laws around liquor distribution, right? So uh, how does that work and what... can you give us some indication of the profitability that's left for the producer in the in the booze sure. biz? You know, after prohibition, when alcohol was re-legalized, they set up a three-tier system to keep any one producer from monopolizing all the way through. It's to try to keep out corruption. And so what that means is mm-hmm. we have to sell to a distributor. The distributor has to sell to a retailer, whether that's on-premise or off-premise. So, like, your local bar can't just run to the liquor store and pick up a bottle of Down East because now that's a retailer to retailer, and they have to buy through a distributor. And we can't sell direct. Ah. So, legally, they keep that three-tier system in there. So once a distiller makes their their product, they sell it to a wholesaler, but then ultimately it gets drowned um, in, in the distributor's books. And well, first you got to find someone who's willing to buy a new brand, which is a little more challenging. And then okay. we started with a really small distributor who only had like five different labels. And he ultimately went out of business, but he okay. gave us you know, enough of a foothold that we were able to move to a mid-sized distributor. But then a mid-sized distributor with all the sales reps and the teams, and you don't have that same direct relationship maybe with a really small distributor, but they have relationships with all of their accounts. So it, it kind of goes both ways. And on the margin, the government gets the most. So, okay. <laughs> There's like, by the time we produce it and pay tax on it, and then the distributor buys it and pays tax on it, and the retailer buys it and pays tax on it, and you go in and buy it and pay tax on it, about a third of the cost of the bottle. A third of the cost of the bottle is, is say that one more time. A third of the cost of the bottle is what? Taxes. By the time the end consumer ends up buying a bottle at a liquor store, it's about a third, at least in Illinois, is taxes. Okay. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm paying 33 bucks or 35 bucks, 11 of that is, is going to taxes. So does that mean, you know, 
11 of it is going to the so the 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 people along the supply chain and 11 is going back to the producer or is it smaller than it's that it's just like an ag and the producer gets the smallest cut okay so on a bottle you know our our bottle retails around $25 and we we profit just over $2 a bottle. Wow. Yep. So with a distribution system like this, there's a lot of people in between. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if I understand correctly, you're about to an about to embark on an experiment that shortens that chain up (laughs) a little bit and probably comes with its own set of complexities. Tell us what comes next in your distilled spirits business. So the contract distiller that we had been working with decided to scale up. And again, Andy, I'm just going to say that there's a lot of these things that have happened. These opportunities fell in my lap. A lot of times I wasn't ready for it or we weren't ready for it. But we saw it and we did it anyway because mm-hmm. we we're close to being ready, but not comfortably ready. And things have so far worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so the distiller that we had been working with was upgrading into a selling distill that had been making our vodka and our whiskey. And it was in our price range. Okay. So we bought it. And then we wanted to get it going. So we're looking for a building in our hometown. We wanted something in town so we could have good utilities. And there was a building that came up for sale. That was, it It, it was a big fixer-upper. It was big enough. It had the right utilities and all the bones, but it's a fixer-upper. Um, and it was in our price range. Okay. So, like my equipment, you know, needs some, some elbow grease. <laughs> and we bought it. Uh, so that was a year ago. We bought the building. We started gutting it. We got it almost gutted now. Uh, we have this still up. We have a fermenter. We have a mash tank. The electrician is working in there today. My dad is working in there today running some piping. Uh, we, so we, we have our final... Uh, we have our federal license. We have our local license. Our state inspection is coming up first week of October. And then we should be ready to start producing okay. our own vodka and whiskey here on on site. In fact, and then so our margins should go up a little bit by being able to control all of our own inputs, not having to pay someone their margin to do it, right? And you're going to be producing it on the equipment that has always produced your spirits. That's right. That's right. So consistency should be really good. Consistency should be really good. But there's also a lot of variables. Sure. I mean, we'll be using different water. We we'll, might grind a different size. We, you know, we're probably, we're not as good distillers as Adam. So we might do something else pretty quickly. <laughs> Um, so there'll be a lot of variables. Hopefully Adam's willing to give you a few pointers here oh, and there. <laughs> yeah, Adam's been extremely helpful. We have a lot of friends in this industry. 
everyone's it's a really fun really friendly industry um yeah and then we plan to open up a tasting room where people can come in and have a cocktail sit down see the still hear our stories go look at a, a bunch of barrels in the back room and and be able to, to totally immerse themselves in the whole experience. And we're really looking forward to that. That's so exciting. <laughs> That's so much fun. So does it does it increase your profitability by as much as I think it should by being the the grower, the distiller, and the and the retailer all in one? Or is there is there still some way that you have to give a lot of that up? <laughs> no, that, that I mean, yeah. When when you take the distributor and the retailer out of it, and if someone would walk in and buy a twenty five dollar bottle of vodka, I mean, yes, we still have to pay our tax on it, but. Not everyone in that whole chain has to pay taxes. There's only tax paid once on it. And then, yeah, we're basically making the entire margin on it. So where we had been getting $2, we'll end up getting a heck of a lot more. And then when you take that $25 retail bottle and you can get 18 shots out of it, each shot goes into a drink. Now, if you sell, if you sell that cocktail for five bucks, now you're getting ninety dollars a bottle, minus your bartender and whatever mixers go in there and whatever overhead you got. But yeah, but theoretically, it should be higher, higher than, than two. two. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you'll be managing for. <laughs> Cool. Okay. And so are you, are you bringing your, your banker and your bookkeeper and all of those folks along for this ride oh, yeah. as well? Yeah. Um, keeping very good communication with the banker on progress and things. The city uh, awarded us uh, a very generous TIF grant. Um, so I've been in touch with the mayor and the city council and keep them in the loop, make sure they know what's going on. Um, yes, we're being very open about how things are moving or trying not to get expectations too high. There's a lot of excited people in Paxton. No, Paxton is a small town. 4,000 people. Everyone's leaving Paxton. No one's building stuff in Paxton. So to have something fun and interesting like this that can start to draw uh, some people back in is, is really exciting for Pat. So we're trying to curb expectations and make sure that no one gets too excited because we're doing it a lot ourselves and it'll be a few years yet before yeah. we're open to the public. Gotcha. Still super cool and a lot more to learn. <laughs> so you're going to be a, a serial entrepreneur all of a sudden with both the S serial and the C serial. And boy, <laughs> the puns just write themselves. 
<laughs> well, that's super good, Will. I, I, I'm glad that that is uh, a thing that's in your future. And I, I hope it proves to be, what should I say, equally easy or easier to come by profitability in that biz than it is in the farming biz. <laughs> I definitely think moving it as, as a shot and a cocktail uh, will help me hit that thousand dollars in internet profitability a lot quicker. Wonderful. Will, thank you so much for your time today. We really look forward to seeing the trajectory of your farm and your distillery business as it as it grows and succeeds. I've got a lot of confidence in you. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited. Next time you're down, I'll I'll show you. Take you in there. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. 